Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The leading media group in Australia has been a promoter of climate change denialism for a long time. And but course, Murdoch said just yesterday there were no deniers there. Mm, yeah, no deniers. Well, that, that means he's obviously not reading his own newspapers. Hello, good people of pods, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. It's Catherine Murphy with you, and I'm in Sydney today with uh, my boss and my very good friend, Lenore Taylor. And our special guest in the studio in Sydney for this week is Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister and Liberal Party leader. With bushfires, such a profound issue that's captured the national consciousness with renewed debate in the public domain about climate change policy and the best means of trying to mitigate damage, we thought it'd be a good week to bring Malcolm Turnbull in for a conversation about climate. It's an issue he's very passionate about and it's an issue we're passionate about, as uh, listeners know. So that conversation's coming up. So we're seeing the reality of climate change right now in Australia in the most terrible ways. What is the appropriate political response to that? How should we be reacting to that rhetorically and in policy sense? Well, honestly, is the most important thing. You, the reality is that the consequence of climate change, as we have known for many years in Australia, is hotter and drier times and rainfall, less rainfall generally, but more erratic rainfall. And so if you have a hotter and drier climate, that means that you will have more bushfires and more and longer droughts. And we're seeing, we're seeing both. I mean, this is exactly as was predicted and expected. So there are no surprises here, or there shouldn't be. What about, though, we've seen... Uh, particularly as uh, the the bushfires have escalated over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a debate in the public domain that, oh, well, (coughs) Australia only contributes 1.3% of global emissions. Nothing Australia can do would make any difference to any of this stuff. You know, I've I've seen this everywhere over the last couple of weeks. Murphy, these are the worst arguments, really. I mean, on that basis, you could say, you know, if I don't pay, if I don't pay my tax, it's not going to result in the army going without pay, uh, because I'm only point you know, percent of tax receipts. I mean, that's the rea- the reality is Australia has to take action to reduce emissions. We have a commitment under the Paris Agreement to do so, and I think also people look to Australia as a developed country 
uh, a wealthy country to take the lead, to, to take a leading role. You know, when we respond to bushfires, we obviously must respond swiftly, compassionately, practically, helping people, helping the those people who have lost lives, lost, you know, been injured, lost property. Compassion and empathy is vitally important. But, you know, we also have to recognize that this is a symptom of the reality of a hotter and drier climate. And, you know, almost every morning you hear on the radio a farmer, and I've spoken to so many of them directly, who has in his or her records, rainfall records going back over a century, and they will invariably say, we have never seen anything like this before. So, so you know, people on the land, you know, I, I, you know, I had this experience when I was prime minister and I see it today. I'd see politicians who claim to represent the bush talking about climate change. And I tell you, they are not speaking for farmers. And most of them uh, don't know the first thing about farming and they don't know the first thing about agriculture. And the reality is people on the land are living with and dealing with the consequences of a hotter and drier climate. So do you think the way we respond to this actually impedes our ability to argue internationally for tougher action? Well, of course it does. I mean, you you have to be seen to be taking action. If you're not taking action, you're not going to have much credibility. Our climate diplomats, if you like, our environmental ambassadors and so forth, have done a very good job over the years and very, very proficient and and you know, technically skilled in every respect. But uh, it's very important that Australia is seen as taking action and taking the issue seriously. Now, how much you do and when you do it and the manner in which you do it, these are all important issues. But I think, you know, the, the, the tragedy of our times in politics on this issue is that what should be a factual scientific issue, a matter of physics, if you like, or as I used to say, engineering, engineering and, economics, and economics, a factual matter has become an issue of identity. And I mean, Greta Thunberg nailed it when she said, I come to America, and in America they've got the same phenomenon, and people talk about believing climate change. Well, she said in Europe it's regarded as a question of fact, and so it should be. It's like saying, do you believe in gravity? Tell me, because you, you're better placed than anybody to actually tell me this story. John Howard in 2007 lined the Liberal Party up behind an emissions trading scheme. Uh, obviously, Howard went on a bit of a journey, shall we say politely, uh, to land in that position. But there, there was the Liberal Party primed and ready to go. Then after 2007, something went wrong. What went wrong? Climate denialism started to take root initially in the United States and, and what should have been again, being a practical issue of, uh, you know, there's that great quote of uh, Howard's about how important it is as a prudent conservative to take insurance, and that that's common sense. But it, the issue became one of identity rather than one of fact. Why, and why so, though, Malcolm? Well, why did that happen? Well, it's it, there are many theories about it. I think the, uh, you know, people with big economic vested interests had a hand in it but quite why so many people became persuaded that climate change was fake, I struggle to understand. I mean, there are people who believe the earth is flat. There are people who believe that Elvis is still alive, you know, that the moon landings were faked. You know, there, is also, there, are, there are plenty of 
odd beliefs out there and conspiracy theories, but what ha- what I have always struggled to understand is why climate denialism uh, still has the currency that it has, and particularly given that the evidence of the impact of climate change is now so apparent, and it is particularly apparent uh, to people living in regional and rural Australia, where precisely what was forecast uh, is happening. And we are, you know, we have seen a step down in rainfall availability, and that has all of the implications for fires and droughts uh, that we're witnessing and experiencing at the moment. But specifically in Australia, why do you think those arguments have had the sway that they have had? Well, I think they've been, they have been uh, amplified in the Murdoch press. You can't get away from that. The leading media group in Australia has been a promoter of climate change denialism for a long time. And but Murdoch said just yesterday there were no deniers there. Mm, yeah, no deniers. well, uh, I would. Uh, that means he's obviously not reading his own newspapers but or watching his own uh, cable news channels. No, I, I don't think you can take that too seriously. The fact is that they have given it a lot of amplification. Having said that, it is a very significant question. You know, why is something that that, that common sense says should be a question of fact. I mean, I, I gave a speech years ago, but you know, when we we're still in opposition, about this, and I said that you know, people that reject the experts on climate change are like somebody who is told by their physician that they should, you know, lose weight, stop smoking, eat better, healthier diet, and says, "No, I won't do that," because uh, I was talking to a guy down at the pub, and his uncle Ernie, you know, smoked you know, a carton of cigarettes a day and drank a, you know, a dozen schooners and ate meat pies and lived to 90. And I mean, that, like you say that, it's laughable, but that's essentially where we have got to in so many cases. I mean, I had one occasion where a very prominent business person was uh, telling me that, you know, the whole climate change thing was a fallacy. And I, I asked him why he said that. And he, he showed me some stuff he'd read on the internet, which was actually published by the LaRouche organisation. Name names, go we'll, on. We'll, we'll, we'll be discreet for, for the moment. But interestingly, this was a gentleman whose business relied on dealing with engineers and experts in many scientific disciplines. And he was a bit embarrassed when I pointed it out to him. But it, it, it shows you that, you know, people are very prepared to believe what they want to believe. And so if they only need a, you know, a shred of uh, justification for believing that there isn't a problem, they'll grab it. But we have to recognise that, that we face a very, very serious challenge. It's getting worse by the year. You know, time is, is, is not our friend. But the good news is, I mean, just to, you know, get onto the good news for a minute, the good news is that we can see a way through it. Uh, we are now in a position where we can deliver, and this is what I was endeavouring to do as PM, we can deliver an electricity generation system which is zero or very near zero emissions. We can have clean energy and very cheap energy. 
technology is that going to be is our friend there I, this is the speech i gave in paris in 2015 i said technology will provide the answer and and it, it is is it partly because we've allowed the debate to be framed mm. in terms of costs the whole time when in fact the cost of technology's come down so much that we should be framing it now in terms of benefit i've just finished reading roscano's book about mm. how it could be a renewable energy superpower like if the debate was framed in terms of opportunity do you think that would I think that would I think Help. that I think that's really how you've got to see it. I mean you've you've got to recognize that when we were talking about this in 2007 when I was environment minister in Howard's government, you know, solar and wind were much more expensive than generating electricity from burning coal. That is lit- that is literally no longer the case. There is no way you would with with any in any rational economic way, build a new coal-fired power station in Australia. Now, but aren't politicians you know, talking is, about subsidising them? Well, that that would be a major mistake. I mean, the, the, the reality is, the only argument the, that there there is one argument, and I've you know I've talked about this in the past. There is one argument to justify a new coal-fired power station, which would be as a demonstration plant of the most you know the most clean coal operation that you could imagine, preferably with carbon capture and storage. But I have to say to you, things have moved on. You know, it, that, that is no longer, it is no longer an economically viable alternative. The game has been won. You know, the better mousetrap has arrived, has won the, the battle. And, the, and what the best combination is now variable renewable energy, which is for the most part, in, will be for the most part in Australia, solar, I think in due course, but solar and wind, plus storage, and that can be pumped hydro, it could be batteries, it could in due course become hydrogen, or it might be a gas peaker, which obviously has emissions. But the bottom line is that the renewables have won, and that is why nobody in the energy sector is wanting to build new coal-fired power stations. This is not to say that we don't need to eke out a few more years. You know, I mean, I was very concerned about Liddell closing peremptorily in 2022, and I tried to persuade them to keep it going for a few more years, not because I liked old coal-fired power stations, but because I knew Snowy 2.0 was going to come on stream in 25, and I was concerned that we could have a shortage of dispatchable power in New South Wales between 22 and 25. Now, I think that's, you know, other solutions have been found for that, but that's why I say it's got to be planned. So you you don't, you, you want to be making sure that as the old coal-fired power stations close down, you've got the new uh, energy, dispatchable energy uh, coming up. But governments could really stuff up that, um, to use the technical term, stuff up that cost curve if there's intervention to shore up the more expensive old technology, couldn't well, that they? That's be, the one thing that could really well, mess it up. Well, shoring up, sh- subsidising coal is about as crazy as you could get. The argument in favour of subsidising renewables was twofold. One was that it helped reduce emissions. That was the weakest argument. The better argument was that by subsidising it, you created the demand, which resulted in you know an improvement in the technology, the benefits of scale, all of that. Which that is the whole re- rationale for the RET. Which will re- produce lower cost for renewables. And there's no doubt that's happened. I mean, that that is... In some respects, all those subsidies in Germany over the years provided enormous impetus, as they have in other countries, including our own. But to be subsidising a technology that is 
you know, frankly, more expensive is not is not a great idea. It's a really bad idea. I mean, my, my concern is that we want to have lower emissions and lower prices. Now, that those two used to be seen 10 years ago, you would have said that is that they're incompatible. They are not. Now they go together. So the, the risk, and this was my argument about the NEG, the risk of abandoning the uh, emissions reduction you know, agreement or uh, measure is that you end up with both higher emissions and higher prices. And that is a lose-lose. Well, you've sort of semi-answered the question because I, I'm glad you raised the neg because as we're speaking today in Sydney on Friday, ministers, energy ministers are meeting in Perth. And uh, there was a run, as I'm sure you know, uh, by a number of the state governments uh, to try and revive the NEC. However, Angus Taylor has basically said, we're not doing that. And so now a number of bilateral agreements are being negotiated in lieu of the policy mechanism. Now, a couple of things about the NEC. I read in Nikki Savva's book that you wanted to pursue, well, you wanted to go ahead with the National Energy Guarantee. You had the legislation ready. It went to the table's office. And Christopher Pine and Peter Dutton withdrew it from the table's office. Is that true? Can that possibly have happened? Well, I mean, Christopher was the manager of government business. That may well be right, but it was at the cabinet were absolutely of the view, uh, and I, I agreed with them that at that time we couldn't afford to put the legislation in if it was going to be lost. You know, we had a growing group on the back bench that were telling us they were going they would cross the floor and vote against it which means that we, we would lose a you know important vote on the floor of the house the national party were moving as well so there was a an insurgency going on now whether it was really about the neg or really about destabilizing my leadership is the subject of a few books as we know uh, but it was that you know the view the, it wasn't a decision of mine alone I was keeping the cabinet very, very close and we were making decisions collectively. But we did not abandon it. I mean, again, you know, people have said Malcolm Turnbull abandoned the neg. That is not true. What we said was we won't put the legislation in until we're confident it can be passed. It was. And it it remained government policy. It it, ceased to be government policy under Scott Morrison. He... He or he, his government yes, made a decision yeah. formally to abandon. No, no, that's absolutely right. He took the cabinet decision to abandon the policy. Yeah, that's that's right. for sure. That's you right. are in fact, the Scott. Scott was very much of the view at the time that we should not abandon the neg, that we should stick with it, but that we shouldn't put the legislation in because we were worried that we were setting ourselves up, you know, to get rolled by people on our own back bench who's interests, to say the least. Uh, They did not have my best interests or, frankly, the government's best interests at heart. Is it it slightly more complicated than that in the sense that, uh, I mean, it's it's arguable whether Labor would have passed that legislation, but my my own judgment is that they would have. And so it wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have lost you would have, well, you, you would have, have needed. Numbers, I mean, you would have split the yeah, government. Yeah, you would have. You would have needed to. I mean, if we had got through that week, that is a discussion we could have had with Labor potentially. But you wouldn't want to put yourself in the, you know, at the mercy of Bill Shorten at the time. He he did not have my best interests at heart either. So, you know, this is the challenge I always had. Labor, the kind of the official opposition, and this group within the 
coalition that would rather we lost an election but, than won it under me. But 12 months on, uh, but do you have any regrets about that now? Now, I mean, like oh. if we go back to the mad week, right? Mm. We go back to the mad week. Mm. I asked you on that on that yeah, day in I, that I, press I conference mm. whether or not you were in essence giving Tony Abbott what he wanted by by icing the scheme. Well, what do you have it's just yeah, a simple no, question. Yeah. Do you have any regrets about what you did in that week now? Could you have seen a set of circumstances where you just said we're going to do it and be damned? I think in the circumstances I couldn't have done that. I mean I'm I I ran a cabinet government. How could I have said to the cabinet who were as far as I'm aware unanimously of the view that we should not put the legislation in unless we could be satisfied that we would carry it. We, we always expected we might get, you know, one or two crossing the floor, but the numbers were getting up well into double figures. So the temptation for Shorten to use that as a means to bring down the government would were very, very strong. So the, the Cabinet's view, uh, which I shared, uh, and it was that, you know, we should hit the pause button on that while we get through the rest of the week. Now, look, people have always been urging me to, um, you know, take um, rash actions, but I think that was, I think at the time, the right thing to do was to stay, to stick very close with the cabinet. But, but you know, there are diff you could make different arguments. So, look, the people who decided at the last minute to indicate they would cross the floor against the neg did so knowing that they were doing enormous damage to the government and they did it in order to do enormous damage to the government because the NEG was not a policy that, you know, was not a captain's call. It had gone to the cabinet numerous times. There'd never been any opposition to it in the cabinet. It had gone into the party room numerous times. It had the support of industry. It had, you know, there's never been an energy policy that's had as broad support as that. I think you'd agree with that. And that, of course, is why the state governments, including the state liberal governments, wanted to stick with it. But uh, again, it's become part of this crazy identity politics. And so for no good policy reason, it's not being continued with. I mean, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg were two of its keenest supporters. So, so, so Scott hasn't suddenly decided it's a bad idea any more than Josh has. What they've recognised is that there is a group within the party that are prepared to blow the show up use this as, as a means of blowing the show up if they persist with it. You, you, in, in this conversation about the NEG and what happened in those weeks, uh, you've indicated that you know, various people didn't have the best interests of the government at heart, right? Various, sure, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Right? Did Scott Morrison have the best interests of the government at heart? Well, I, 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 yes, I, I think he, Scott was uh, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to get into the, all the ins and outs of the various ballots, but, I mean, Scott, Scott was... Um, uh, I mean, the NEG was something that was a, a joint project and Scott had a hand in it, as obviously Josh, as the energy minister, I suppose, had the largest hand in it, but so did I and the rest of the cabinet, particularly the energy subcommittee of cabinet. So I don't think the there was anyone in the cabinet that was against the NEG. I mean, even Peter Dutton, who, of course, you know, was the leader, supposedly, of the insurgency, he had never criticised it, to my knowledge, to my to my recollection. I mean, he just never, made, there'd never been a criticism about it. I mean, uh, Angus Taylor had always been, you know, an internal critic of the NEG. 
but uh, we're never entirely clear why. So we've lost the policy mechanism now, but we still have the target that you signed up for in, in Paris. Paris. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that we have policies right now to reach that target? And also mm. that target's debated now as if it's the, it, the end of the story. But as I recall, Paris, there were always going to be reviews. Like oh, the yeah, expectation was that ultimately we'd have to do more than that. So do we have the policies to get to 26 to 28% and do we have the policies to get further if that's what we eventually have to do? Well, I think in the absence of a rapid decarbonisation of the energy sector, I think we will struggle to get to the 26 to 28% target. That's why the NEG was very important. It was going to contribute to that. Obviously, the use of carryover credits can assist, but, you know, that's that's a controversial one. But you're right. I mean, the 26 to 28 percent pledge we made in, in Paris was just the first step. I mean, we, we must not kid ourselves, and I'm on the record saying this, you know, many places, that to arrest or slow global warming to acceptable levels, we have to get to a complete or near complete decarbonisation of the energy sector. And so the generation of electricity really is what I'm talking about. And then that is coupled then with what I'd call the electrification of the economy so that many sectors that are now operating on fossil fuels, transport, for example, uh, becomes as far as possible uh, operated with, uh, you know, electric power. So all of that is part, is one of their, their key building blocks you know, then you've got the hydrogen piece, I think is very prospective. It's something um, that's perhaps a little bit further down the track. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, this is why you've got, to, you've got to do all of the above. And this is why Snowy Hydro was so important and indeed the Tasmanian Battery of the Nation, you know, uh, plan, which is another initiative of mine. They, th- that is old technology. Pumped hydro has been around for more than a century. And it, you, people, some of the critics may well be right. In 20 or 30 years' time, there may be some cool way of achieving that uh, end, you know, storing energy more efficiently. But you know what? We know, we, we know it works right now and it works at scale and it's something we can do now. And so we've got to do stuff in the here and now with proven technology and we've got to work on the new technology as well. But right now... Absent the NEG, we don't have a suite of policies to get to that target. Well, I think the that's what the energy sector is saying. I don't, you know, I don't want to you get into these debates about statistics, but what the energy sector is crying out for is settled government policy. And they had that with the NEG, and that was recklessly and wantonly blown up by the insurgents in the coalition. And as a consequence of that, we have higher emissions and higher electricity prices. So and I mean, if you think that, you know, Tony Abbott and Craig Kelly and Erica Betts and all of these characters, if you think they know more about the energy sector than, uh, you know, the Energy Security Board, all of the companies in the energy sector industry, then, you know, then you probably do believe Elvis is still with us. Is it reasonable for us to use carryover credits again? Well, I think it's, I think you can use, I think it's, yes, it, the answer is it's reasonable, but, uh, and it's, you know, lawful, it's part of the deal. But I think we've got to recognise that you've got to do more because you're right. I mean, the key point you've made, Lenore, is that it's, uh, this is only one step. 
So if you only get to 26 to 28% by using a whole lot of carryover credits, how are you going to get to the next level? So we're kind of delaying of emission the inevitable. abatement. Yeah. So you, you know, I'm not, I think it's uh, carryover credits are fine, but you want to use them, you'd want to use them, I would think, in a way more as insurance as uh, something to fill in a gap if you don't quite make it. You're saying it shouldn't than be rely- a substitute for ambition. Well, correct, because otherwise, if you if you get to 26 to 28% with carryover credits, then how are you going to get to the next target, which might zero. be 35% or net zero? So, so the goal has got to be an electricity sector which is as close to zero emissions as possible, and that is achievable but it needs to be planned. And now get back to my point about engineering and economics. I mean, we are in this outstanding circumstance at the moment where the cheapest form of new generation is renewables plus storage. But you can't just say that. You've got to then do it. You've got to make the decisions and the planning. You need more transmission. You need you know, more storage. And you've got to plan your grid in a a different way. And, and you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the South Australian blackout in 2016, you know, which was such a an electrifying, excuse the pun, uh, moment in Australian po- politics in this area. And, you know, there were a lot of wild things said on both sides. But the truth of the matter is that South Australia moved to the point where it had a renewable generation base, which could at any moment generate more than 100% of the state's demand and then none. And everything was reliant on a big extension cord into Victoria. I mean, that was crazy. You know, so what you're now seeing in South Australia, and part of that is due to initiatives we took, is storage. You know, and there are plans for pumped hydro. There are batteries going in there. You know, the gas peakers have been reinstated. You just have to plan it out. But I I promise you, you know, we are in this extraordinary moment. This is where Ross Garner is absolutely right. The opportunity is gigantic to have... Very, you know, green and cheap electricity, and that, and, and I think that's that's what we need to be addressing. So, you know, ideas like the Green New Deal, and I mean, I'm not going into the detail of the American Green New Deal, and I'm not sure that the, its authors have either. But the fact is that we do have the opportunity of having abundant and cheap electricity, which will be zero or, or very low and emissions. And could be used for manufacturing oh, and industry in the very regions where the economic pain is being felt most um, yeah. by the decline in fossil fuels, right? Well, of course of course it can. And the But, I mean, there are projects I know about, I won't breach any confidentialities here, but I know about projects, energy projects in Australia at the moment that are not being proceeded with because of the lack of certainty and clarity in government policy. So the government, the fact that we don't have the NEG and we've had nothing coherent put in its place and it's well over a year, which is an eternity in politics and in business, that is holding back investment. So it's really working against investment. And that's what I hear from the energy sector, both people who run the companies that generate the electricity and the people who invest in them. What kind of magnitude of projects? Uh, well, I won't. I just say, uh, you know, uh, uh, more than several, B- because the. I mean, I. Well, I'll give you an example. I was with one talking to one of the largest renewable energy investors in the world not so long ago, who said to me, "They're investing a lot of money in renewables in China, 
but not in Australia. I said, why not Australia? Oh, too much political risk and uncertainty. Well, there you go. In a sense, business is kind of agnostic about what the rules are, you know, but they just there needs to be some coherent rules. They need to know, they need certainty. I mean, business doesn't demand certainty in the sense of wanting to be certain about what the exchange rate's going to be or what interest rates will be. But, you know, where governments create uncertainty, that is really working against investment and that means it's working against, you know, all of the good economic outcomes we we uh, want to achieve. The government's been threatening to try and create certainty in a different way by expanding secondary boycotts legislation in an unspecified way as yet, but in a, to stop sort of uh, consumer campaigns and market forces type campaigns against um, expanding fossil fuel uh, mines. Is that in line with sort of liberal freedom of speech? I, well, I, 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 think it's, I think it's very likely not in line with the constitution. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, there've been plenty of uh, uh, cases where uh, people on the you know coalition side of politics have said, um, you know, don't bank with this okay, bank, blah, blah. you know, mm-hmm. this bank because they uh, won't lend money to the coal industry or they won't lend money to this industry or that. And I think if people want to say, um, you know, don't advertise, you know, in the Sydney Morning Herald because you, you know, you disagree with their editorial line, that's fine. I mean, I honestly, I I think the we've got to, there's there's a lot of value. Uh, well, our whole our whole democracy is based on freedom of speech, and if citizens want to uh, urge people to advertise in one place or another, uh, they're entitled to do that. And it's qualitatively. Different so, from the you know, old so, secondary boycotts. If you sort of physically stop someone from going into yeah. a shop, that's mm. one thing. Yeah. But if you if someone if you persuade someone, yeah. that's surely something quite different. Well, that's right. I mean, there is a difference between saying, "I urge you not to place an advertisement on Two GB because of the appalling, abusive language of Alan Jones," and actually, I don't know, interfering with somebody's directly with somebody's business to prevent them doing that. You know, I mean, it is, it, you are entitled to express a view about the value or, or the, the merits of, uh, of other people's speech and encourage people to, you know, share your views in, in how they place their advertising. I, I think it's a freedom of speech issue, but I've got to say, I, I, I think, uh, I mean, Christian Porter will have to tread very carefully to get that around the um, Constitution's implied uh, uh, doctrine of, of freedom, freedom of, of political freedom speech. Of speech yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of questions about the olden mm. times, because mm. we must. Obviously, uh, you've been twelve. I'm months. amazed that uh, you can remember them. You know. <laughs> Can't you remember? Yeah. Them? <laughs> Aren't they I remember. I remember them quite vividly. Yes. Um, so you've been obviously you've been out of politics for nearly twelve months. Yeah, a bit over a year. Yeah, yeah. a bit over mm, a year now. Yeah. So you've had a moment to mm. regroup, reflect recalibrate, however you, however you want to express it. Looking back now, what have you learned being, being out of... No, <laughs> We're no, at no. the end of the podcast. No, no, no. Uh, no, no. What have you learned? You, yeah. You're outside the crucible now. What, what, yeah. what do you think you learned from that period? Well, I've written, a, I've, I've written a book or nearly finished writing a book about which will deal with all of that. <laughs> So that's a bit hard to put into a no, uh, two sentences. A nutshell, but no, but I'm just interested. Like, is there some? Is there a? 
Is there a particular th- front of mind thought that uh, that is, well, something is clearer to you now, obviously, than it was in the middle of that dreadful last few well, months? Well, look, I, I, I've always, um, I've always fo- tried to focus on the big picture. In fact, that's what I'm calling my memoir, A Bigger Picture. I've tried to focus on the getting the big things right and making sure we make the right, the big policy decisions correctly and wisely. You know, to be honest with you, Murfaru and Lenore, given the challenges I had and the, you know, internal opposition I had, you know, I'm pleasantly surprised that I got as much done in the time that I had as Prime Minister. The amount of things we were able to do, you know, whether it was on the international stage, which I guess you don't need parliamentary support for by and large, but domestically was extraordinary given we didn't have a majority in the Senate. I mean, how many times did, you know, did, you know, you and your colleagues in the press gallery say to me, why don't you just admit you'll never get this through the Senate? And, you know, I would say, oh, well, just let me see how I go. And we would get things through the Senate. And and so we got a lot done, a lot of very valuable reform. Energy remains an unfinished work, but it is because ideology and idiocy has prevailed over engineering and economics. And the bizarre thing is, it is very much a function of this little bubble that the, you know, right wing of the Liberal Party operate in. It's not shared by the state Liberal governments. Uh, it's not shared by industry. Uh, it, it is, it's a tragedy that such an important area of policy, which desperately needs coherent vision, uh, and a, a coherent plan is still adrift. So, and, given and we're that, pay, you know, we're paying for that. So, but just in terms of my own my own time as PM, um, I'm pleased. You know, I would have liked to have done the job for longer, obviously, but I never wanted to do the job forever. I might say, but I wanted. I would have liked to have done the job for longer. I would have liked to have got some more things done, but I got much more done than I ever thought would be possible, or anyone else thought would be possible in the circumstances. So in that case, in that regard, I'm a sort of a lucky person. So given what the point you just made, what are your reflections about the federal Liberal Party as a as an institution of government? As a- well, I mean, it, I think, you know, John Howard raised the issue today. I saw, you know, a speech he talked about the problems of political parties not being representative of of the nation or of the people who vote for them. I mean, winning elections is important, right? And you can't do anything if you don't win elections, granted. But equally, you've got to deliver the right policies. You've got to deliver. It's no good. You know, people used to say to me, for example, oh, you shouldn't talk about innovation. People don't like you talking about innovation. Well, what do you think our economy will look like in 10 years' time if we don't take innovation seriously? I'll tell you what it'll look like. It'll be backward. You know, we, and everyone will have a lower standard of living. So you've got to be, you've got to deliver the right policy outcomes, and then clearly make sure you can sell them politically. But if your only measure of success is political in the sense of electoral success, then you can run the risk of winning a lot of elections and not doing very much, and the country is the loser. But all parties have to involve compromises between groups of people with different views, and you've just Mm. said that the Liberal Party had a minority who blocked a really critical issue for the duration and continued to do so. Mm. Is that viable? Is that 
Well, it's. I mean, it, it, politics is a is a is a relative business. I always say it's like football. You know, you might think you're a pretty scruffy team, but if the people you turn up to play against on the weekend are worse than you, you win. You know, Labor obviously, as I acknowledge, lost that last election. Uh, Scott campaigned very well in all of the circumstances, but the coup and the insurgency and Dutton and others put a lot of lead in his saddlebags. But I've just. But if I could just make you know this point. The problem with the right in the right wing group in the Liberal Party is that they operate like terrorists. Now, I'm not suggesting they throw bombs or blow people up or anything like that, but their technique is to say, unless you do what we want, we will blow the joint up. And you both have seen them do that on several occasions, and that is, the, that is how they basically intimidate people in the centre, in the middle, to go along with them. And that was that was the technique of the, that was the, you know, the technique of the Dutton insurgency. If yeah. that's the case, then how can anybody lead the Liberal Party as a viable policymaking effort? Well, I think what, what you know, what Scott is obviously a more socially conservative leader than me, but he is not beloved of the hard right at all. You know, on some issues... You know, very strongly against gay marriage, for example, so they would find all of that reassuring. But equally, this is why he has to tread so carefully. I mean, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for Scott with energy policy. I mean, he believes the NEG is the right policy, just as I did, just as Josh did. I mean, it was, we developed it together. But he is faced with the practical political reality that there are people both inside the party and outside of it who are crazy enough to blow the show up over a sensible policy. So they've got to try and find another way to, to do it. And that's the, you know, that is the practical business of politics. Um, so it's, you know, you, you've got to, you, you've got to try, as a leader, you've got to try to keep the show together, but it is increasingly difficult when you have people who do not accept the consensus. You see, the whole premise of a political party should be okay, we have a diverse group, we're a broad church, etc. We get together, we have a debate, the majority or a consensus want to do X, and so everyone says, okay, let's do X. You know, we stick together. But what you've now got in the Liberal Party is that on certain issues, the right will say, we don't care what the majority thinks, we'll blow the joint up. But that... So that that's is, my question. Is that a viable operating well, model for a it, political it, party? It's 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 via... It, it, it's a big liability. There's no question about that. But if the if your opponents, if the Labor Party are lesser, even less attractive, then you can still win elections. But it's uh, but it but it, it, it there is no question that the attitude of the wreckers is a real threat to the Liberal Party. Um, whether it's an existential threat, uh, and I mean this is I think what John Howard was referring to yesterday. Time will tell. Now, I might say, if you put any of this is put to Scott Morrison, he will say it's a bubble issue or he'll, he'll try to push it aside, and I entirely understand why he'd do that, but there is nothing I've said to you on this that he would not, he does not genuinely agree with, right? because you can imagine we've been through this, we've been through this ringer together with him and Josh and other senior members of the government, of my government on many occasions. I mean, this is a, a major 
problem. So, um, so, so what is your prediction, Malcolm, that he will lead in this term by doing something or by doing nothing? Just well, getting back to your well, issue, Well, I mean, right? what you're asking me, well, well, I don't know. I mean, Scott, uh, Scott won the election, you know, with a pretty light agenda, but I have to say, you know, the government's policies in many respects are the Turnbull government's policies minus Turnbull. You know, there's not a lot that is new or different from what uh, was part of my government's policy. And there's a reason for that. Scott was the treasurer, you know, and he was, you know, our, we, we were agreeing. I ran a cabinet government. So the people around that table, for the most part, were fully invested in what my policies were. And so naturally they continue. But over, but, you know, politics is like riding a bicycle. If you stop pedaling, you fall off. So they have to come up with some new agendas and some new policies, but it's going to be, well, we'll, we'll, we'll see what they are. I mean, I think, you know, I, th I think in a lot of challenges that you're facing, you, you're dealing with these very difficult identity slash ideological issues. And, you know, the energy conundrum is, is one of them. Last question. Uh, so if, as you've said, that um, that basically the government that's that's in power in Canberra at the moment, led by Scott Morrison, is the Turnbull government, Turnbull policies with a different leader. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm no, saying no, in, la in large no, no, part no, no, it has no, been. I, know, you know, I get the true. nuance, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, um, uh, does that feel fair to you? Well, it's, uh, I don't think fairness fairness is a uh, it doesn't fairness isn't a, doesn't play a huge part in politics. Why not? Well, why not? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know what you mean by fair. I mean, it's... A... Does it feel fair to you that the that the government that's left in Canberra that just won an election mm. is not headed by you? Well, I would rather that I was still Prime Minister. That's true. Uh, and I don't doubt... You know, I think I, the election would... I'm, I, you know, I'm confident I would have won the election. And in... And I mean, Scott's said that. You know, the reality is the coup was a catastrophe for the Liberal Party. Uh, as you saw in the results of the Victorian state election, you know, a few months afterwards. But, you know, over t time, and one of the things, helpful things I did was vanish into the background, right? I didn't hang around trying to destabilise the government like, you know, uh, other former prime ministers have done. But I'm pleased that my, I'm pleased they're continuing with Snowy 2.0. I'm pleased that the, you know, 2018 budget uh, policy to, you know, flatten the tax scales for most taxpayers was continued with and in fact enhanced. So, you know, in 2018, the, the legislation was, you know, that by the time the, you know, all the various steps of the reform had been undertaken, people would be paying, most people would be, almost everyone would be paying top marginal rate of 32.5%. With stronger revenues, they're able to make that 30. I think that's great. Uh, but what they will now have to grapple with is new challenges that were not anticipated and, you know, the policies that we had in 2018 uh, have been, by and large, continued, well, have been continued with, by and large, for 2019. But, you know, you're going to have to have some new ideas for 2020 and 21 and so forth. Thank you so very much for listening. We really do appreciate it. The executive, boy, I'm, I'm stumbling over my words, the executive producer of the show is Miles Martignoni. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we've got the final two sitting weeks of Parliament coming up over the next two weeks. So we will bring you all the fun of the fair and more. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 